I'm Euro. I'm Chris. And this is Fork Bomb. Tuesday, May 9th, 2017, Episode 9, Automate All the Things. So we have a special guest on again. Um, by again, I mean he is a returning guest, Eric Renfro, all-around great guy. And he's been working on something interesting that he's been telling me about via Skype for the past week or two. And I keep not having enough time to go back and read all of it. And so I figured... Um, this would be an interesting platform for you, Eric, to talk about it and tell us all about it, because it does sound really neat. So, welcome back. Well, thank you. Glad to be back. So, what are you working on? Hmm. That, that's a big, loaded question by itself, because what I'm working on... One... Let's see. first part I'm working on is just a simple garage door opener. But overall, is a system for my house that automates basically everything, including security and safety. Can you elaborate more on everything? <laughs> I mean, can it make me coffee and Well, stuff? Maybe, maybe not coffee, but like being able to know when, which, when and which doors are open and closed, uh, being able to turn on and off lights, uh, open and close the garage door, uh, lock the garage door, which is one of the harder parts of it, actually. Um, locking actual doors without changing the, the deadbolts that are currently in place and, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. Another neat thing that I've been working on, which I've already got some of the prototypes for, is a humidity sensor for the bathrooms. So you go want to take a shower and you don't want the, you forget to turn on the, the, the vent, it just automatically mm-hmm. turns on. And automatically turns off. Exactly. <laughs> so the first... Uh... I had heard about this is when you said, hey, I, I, I have an oscilloscope and I'm reverse engineering my garage door opener. So <laughs> uh, normally I know you as a systems engineer, you deal primarily in software, but every once in a while you get on a wild hair and go on a tangent uh, that I didn't realize you had a talent for. Like uh, when you went Python programming crazy and now you're diving into hardware. Um, so... Could you tell us about um, the garage door opener part of it, um, what you did when you reverse engineered it, and what you're building with it? Sure. So uh, I was learning how the garage door opener actually worked because I have one of those LiftMaster uh, Security Plus 1.0 models, which is you know a few years older. Um, so it's still got the old analog signals that goes through it. Um, and I have one of those three-button control panels that lets me turn on and uh, open the door, tr- turn on and off the the lights that are on it, and you uh, hold down the, the third button to engage the radio lock. Basically, that just prevents outside wireless devices from actually opening it through, you know, wire- wireless controls like drive-by openers and everything like that. So I was like, how does that work? <laughs> So what I ended up doing was I took off the garage door control panel and started looking inside it and how simple it was from just two wires coming in, a resistor, an LED, and two different size capacitors. So I was like, is that really all this is? <laughs> so after discovering how simple that was, I wanted to know what what it was doing and how I can copy that so I can automate it with another 
uh, device, like a wireless control device, because I want to be able to, from outside, uh, from basically anywhere if I wanted to, so say I'm at work, for example, and I uh, UPS comes by with a package that I don't want to be left outside and nobody's home, they can ring the doorbell and I'll know about that. And when the, I can answer the, the door and say, hey, can you uh, put that package in my garage, please? And then while they're, while I'm saying that, open my garage door. <laughs> <laughs> huh. And you could do this remotely? Yes. From anywhere? From anywhere in the world. So how did you figure out um, how the garage door opener was communicating with the garage door? That was the most difficult part, because I, when I first started this project, I didn't even have an oscilloscope. So I went to Amazon. You know, oscilloscopes are pretty expensive. They're usually around $1,000 to $3,000 easily. But I don't have that much kind of that kind of money offhand. So I looked at simpler solutions that may not be as great, but could still function for what I needed it for. So I found a, a do-it-yourself kit. Basically, all the surface mount devices were already on the board, but I had to solder in all the uh, through-hole devices, like resistors, capacitors, ceramic capacitors, you know, all those things. So $40 later, <laughs> I hooked this thing up to my garage door opener, and I, I noticed that the signal going through it, through the garage door controller, through the control panel, I should say, was a simple 80 hertz constant frequency going through it. Um, That's what... Could you back up just a little bit? So, sure. one, you're saying you built your own oscilloscope with a do-it-yourself kit. That is correct. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> two, um, pretend that neither Euro or I have ever worked with an oscilloscope. I kind of get that it's, an, it's a device from the analog era. It has a typically a green screen, plays sounds, and shows waveforms. But could you explain specifically what it's for and how it's used? And also one other thing, um, was, it, uh, was it not possible to buy it used? Um, yeah. Sure. Um, so to answer Euro's questions first, because it's the easier one. Um, yes, it could be possible, but there's still about several hundred dollars. I mean, they, they do not run cheap. Mm. Okay. Because usually a good oscilloscope has two to four channels supported, which each channel that you see, what I'm about to describe, and the rest of what an oscilloscope does. So an oscilloscope lets you uh, look at signals, waveforms. When something is talking with a, a radio-like frequency, it provides a up and a down wave, or in some cases just a simple pulse from zero volts to, for example, 18 volts, and then... Each cycle, which in this, each cycle, which is depending on what speed this frequency is going at, there's an up and there's a down. And this uh, oscilloscope lets you actually see those ups and downs and even below that, uh, like, for example, AC goes up and then it goes down into the negatives, then goes back into the positives and then goes down into the negatives. So it's always up and down. DC is usually just up and zero. So an oscilloscope lets me see those waveforms and analyze what it's doing, how fast it's going, and at what frequencies that it's going at, as long as well as duty cycle, which is how often it's on and how often it's not. So with an oscilloscope, how do you how do you set it up to um, 
how do you set it up to record or view or listen to whatever the garage door opener is sending to the garage? Well, um, I literally, it, it comes with a, a, a connection, a wire that you plug into the device. Usually it's a BNC style connector, very old school. Um, then it has from that BNC connector, uh, two alligator clips, one red, one black, very much similar to a, a voltmeter, but, uh, it does something completely different from a voltmeter. Um, then I literally just hook it up to the positive and negative sides of the control panel and I get my wave signals by pushing buttons. Okay, so it's not doing this over the air then? No, absolutely not. <laughs> there, You could get oscilloscopes for monitoring over the air radio frequencies, but that's a slightly different thing. That clarifies things a lot. And so you were saying you um, were using the oscilloscope to figure out what this thing was doing and... You discovered what? I discovered basically that there's four or five signals going through the garage controller at any given point in time. Usually two to two, one to two at the same time, but sometimes three all at the same time going through it. And something was going at eight eight kilohertz, you said? Eighty kilohertz. Eighty kilohertz. Eighty hertz, actually. Very slow. Fast enough to be fast, like eighty hertz is about... 80 cycles per second. Okay. So what was the result of you finding that? What what made you go, oh, aha? Well, it let me know that there was a standard signal going through, which was just giving pow- power through a signal to the control panel, because there's an LED on there. That signal uh, is altered by the control panel. So if I push the open, close garage door button, it just shorts out the line. There's zero volts going through. <laughs> that's that was easy. It's like, oh, that's like a doorbell button. Um, for the light button, it just uses a one one microfarad capacitor, so it decreases the waveform really, really short because the capacitor is taking all the electricity and sending it out in small, tiny little bursts. And I saw that on my scope. And then the hmm. lock button is a hot, slightly higher twenty-two microfarad. Uh, capacitor, and that made a slightly larger uh, waveform, but still smaller than the normal constant waveform that's going through it. That was a micro what capacitor? Microfarad. That's a unit of measurement I've uh, never heard of before. Yeah. That's just basic capacitance right there. Okay. That won't get us uh, too much in the weeds with that, but uh, yeah, was just curious. Yep. So I was able to copy that in this sense just by using the exact same capacitors currently, but what I'm working on going towards is actually making the microcontroller uh, that controls all this do it without any capacitors at all, just by generating the same frequencies. So the scope is where that came in handy, is coming in handy. So you, kn- you have your scope, you know how it works. Um, I know you did something after that. Hmm, well, I got a microcontroller. It's a ESP8266. I put all this together with a few various components, which I could list off the details or just give off a few little details, which is the the two capacitors, a few resistors, the microcontroller, which is going to be a Wemos D1 Mini, and then several diodes to make protection circuits because I don't want... 24 volts going into a device that that only 
except 5 volts or, in most cases, for signal, 3.3 volts. <laughs> so is this a, a general purpose microcontroller that is uh, reprogrammable? Yes, it is. It's uh, You could program it in actually several different languages now, depending on the firmware you load on it. Um, it's actually using the Arduino uh, SDK for now, which is all C++. So anybody that's familiar with Arduinos can actually program an, an ESP8266 just from code alone. Or you could load in uh, Lua, which is a common one that people use. There's also MicroPython and JavaScript-based firmwares. Interesting. And which one are you using? I'm using pure C++ Arduino through Arduino. Okay. Does this microcontroller already have the um, radio transmission hardware built on it, or did you have to add that yourself? Well, the ESP8266 has uh, Wi-Fi support built in, so that part was there. Um, as far as the uh, one-wire type of protocol, I had to custom program that through both hardware and software. Hardware being the same capacitors at the moment, and software being trying to mimic the signal or just reading states of things. Like if a signal is high, I can tell that the garage door is open or closed based on whether a signal is high or low. And low is, again, zero. <laughs> how, how much of this did you know how to do before you got into this project? Very little. I knew how to solder components. I knew how to fix little things that were wrong here and there. Like, for example, a monitor goes out and you're, you don't have a display, but you see a little, a little light dot in the middle of the screen. That's most, most of the times a capacitor is blown. So I would be able to open up old, uh, TVs or, uh, LCD monitors of some, of sorts and be able to replace the capacitor by looking at it, seeing, oh yeah, that thing's blown, and uh, take it off, go find a matching uh, capacitor of equal or slightly higher capacitance, because you don't want to go lower, but higher within a certain range is okay. So uh, working with hardware at the level that I've been working at on this garage door controller is actually way beyond what I've ever done, because I've never, I've never even used a diode before. I've used resistors, but... I've also burnt my fingers with resistors because I used the wrong ones. <laughs> so has Google been your best friend in in this whole endeavor? Google, um, IRC, I'm, I've actually been working with a guy that, uh, he calls himself a hack of an electrician, of a hardware guy, but he really, really knows his stuff. And he, he's helped me a lot with the, the, the schematics, how to build it, why to do this way, why did you use this kind of diode, and you know all sorts of different details. So resources have mostly been actually other people. That's great. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So you made a working prototype. I'm guessing you have this microcontroller, and there's probably a breadboard involved somewhere, a bunch of wires hanging out, and um, it's pretty much a modified Arduino that can send radio waves at this point, right? Um, not really radio waves, but Wi-Fi and over-the-wire communications with the garage door. Okay. But yeah, it's on a it's on a breadboard. It's all wired up with all sorts of different components and jumper wires and uh, 
little pin wires that lay down flat on the breadboard so that they don't actually take up much hopping space because once you start adding so many jumper cables, it starts getting very hard to get inside and, and put them in place or tweak with them. Mm. And on the actual garage door, I have a Cat5e cable because it had, you know, a good set of uh, four pairs of wires. <laughs> huh. And I have alligator clips hooked up to it because I needed access to the, the limit switches for open and close stat state. And then I have another uh, pair of the Category 5 cable up into the same spot that the control panel plugs into, which is a black and a red wire, or red and a white wire, sorry. And then that gives me the control panel controls, the signal, I should say. So using the twisted pairs on a Cat 5 e-cable to send the signals to the garage door. Correct. That's that's clever. Um, so having it all breadboarded as it currently is is not practical. That's just for prototyping. Um, I remember you mentioning uh, something about uh, KiCAD, and you sent some uh, graphics that you generated with it. Yep. I've actually been, uh, since I've done the prototype itself, uh, almost all the way done besides the software signal frequency, um, I've actually gone so far as to start working on a PC board, which I'm going to actually have manufactured and printed and delivered to me after I've gotten the full plans done with that. Um, I've actually started, I've started making two different prototypes already, and I'm making a third now. The first two, uh, just different layouts of the board because it's very tightly packed together. I'm, I'm aiming for something that's a small size that will actually fit inside the garage door so you can never even see it. Or actually, the garage door unit inside sure. that. <laughs> um, so I'm working with really, really small spaces. Although, you know, there is a lot of space, but I don't want this thing to move around and touch things and, you know, really cause some problems beyond what I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing. Right. <laughs> so um, what does KiCad do, though? Um, if you've ever done any kind of drafting, like architectural drafting or shop class in school or anything like that, it's the very similar concept except for CAD for electronics, letting you work with the layers of a PC board to either one layer, two layer, which is top and bottom, or three, which starts using middle la middle layers, and it lets you work, uh, put in all your uh, component footprints, which the footprints are your holes, your pads, things that you solder connections to, and let you draw out all your uh, leads, your tracks for all the components so that they have electricity going to and from them, signal going to and from them as needed, and with pristine accuracy because it's required. <laughs> huh. And so, Sorry, after you, Hero. I was just going to ask if, if you've ever used any of these CAD programs before. I've actually used AutoCAD before to build a Chinese chessboard, but that's about the extent. <laughs> and KiCAD, I'm guessing, is uh, free and open source. Yes, it is. So is this something else that you've uh, had to go out and, and learn as well? Oh, very much. Uh, working with uh, KiCad is like a whole different world on its own because you have you have to be specific. You can you can 
you can plan out everything, and you should, because you can build a schematic sheet. And within that sheet, you can set each component up with a footprint. And that footprint is the component's surface pads, holes, everything that it needs to be able to work. And then you start building the PC board, and you import that list of components from the schematic, and it automatically gives you all your footprints. But those footprints are very, the most important part of it, because that gives you various sizes of things, like uh, different components have different size poles that you hook in, or different size pads that they work with, because a component may have uh, maybe a, a 1.9 millimeter by 1 millimeter device. You have to have the right set of pads for it to go onto. I see. Um, with this company that you're going to send it to, I guess all you have to do is send them the CAD file, right? The completed CAD file? Yep. And I'm probably, uh, yeah, exactly. You send them the CAD file and then they print it or CNC it or however that company does it. Do they also, um, uh, are they just going to print the, the board for you or will they also, if the, if they need to, if they need to add resistors, uh, capacitors, uh, even microprocessors, will they do that as well? Some might, but they charge extra for it. I'm going to do just have them print it and then build it my build it the rest of the way myself. Okay, by just soldering in uh, the rest of the components. Yep. So, okay. just to be absolutely clear, uh, you're using KiCad to bring it from a breadboarded prototype to and to a real printed uh, PCB and. With KiCad, you can plan that out and then send it to someone that can print the board for you. Exactly. And then um, all that's... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, um, sorry. Uh, and th the only reason that I'm reviewing all this is, one, I'm not familiar with hardware myself, so I'm just making sure that I understand it. And two, for anyone that might be listening that is not familiar with hardware, uh, it'd be cool if they understood it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I wanted to uh, to ask then, where in this uh, whole process were you? Would you begin to work with software? Well, during the software process, I was playing with different firmwares. You know, I mentioned a few that existed. I tried MicroPython and it didn't work very well. I tried the, the JavaScript and it didn't. Once I get to a certain size, it stopped working. So I started developing an Arduino IDE, which I've never written in C plus plus before. <laughs> so that was new. Um, I was able to learn C++ in about a week, long, uh, well enough to be able to write the software. And that was after I'd gotten at least enough of the components detailed out in the schematic of how it should work uh, using a simulator. Mm -hmm. And then started writing code. And my first set of code was actually pretty sufficient, although not perfect. I actually ended up rewriting this thing about two or three times, just just to get it all nice and compact. Because when you're dealing with a microcontroller, you're dealing with a very limited amount of memory and storage space. Oh, so how big is your final? Or I guess it's not really your final, right? Not until you... It's, until not, you mm -hmm. it's not completely finalized, but it's most of the way done. I mean, it's... I guess you could say it, it uses about uh, 230 kilobytes of memory and okay. about... Maybe maybe a meg of space. Okay, so and that's uh, plenty, I suppose, for your microcontroller. 
it, the microcontroller has like 568k or something like that and ha- has four megabytes of storage space. Perfect. Okay. So how do you take this from something that you've written in Arduino into um, into software that lives on the chip? That is actually much simpler than you think. Um, the microcontroller actually has a serial bus already implemented on it. And most development kits, which is what I've been working with, like the Adafruit Huzzah or the Wemos D1 Mini or some kind of Node MCU based development board, it already has a micro USB port installed on it. Uh, the Adafruit Huzzah was what I've been mostly working with, which actually does not have a USB port on it. It actually has a six pin header, which you can plug an FTDI TLS adapter into or a simple three pin serial connector into to a USB connection. That you put the the ESP in boot mode by holding down two buttons in a certain order and then it goes into boot loading mode then you just tell the Arduino IDE to upload it and it uploads it at a nice wonderful 115k bot <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> good thing PBS you're not working with gigabyte <laughs> good thing you're not working with gigabytes over here exactly it would take so long <laughs> <laughs> so We've gone through reverse engineering of the garage door to prototyping to planning a circuit board to your plans to get the software onto it and plans on having it be an actual physical thing, but you said it was a part of a larger whole. Um, uh, that whole being automating all the things. So how... M- how much further have you gotten with that aside from the garage door opener? Uh, where else do you plan to take it? And could you give some uh, further examples of what you see all this doing? Well, that's that's very good stuff. Um, what I've already done now already is I've uh, put together a motion sensor environment so that I can have different uh, motion detectors throughout the house preferably those that are programmable with different sensitivity levels, not just in the hardware, because they usually have some level of sensitivity adjustment in the hardware, but sometimes you want a little bit more control in the software, so I've added extra timing there. Um, But I've been able to get it to where I can detect emotion of a person and not an animal, which is, you know, a a lot of security companies will tell you that we have pet-friendly motion sensors, and they usually don't work so well. Even even in my first initial tests, I was actually playing around with it, and I just throw a ball and let my dogs go chase that ball, and they would pass the path of the peer sensor, the motion sensor, and boom, they were detected every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it differentiate between a person and a, and a pet? It itself doesn't really. Um, the only way to really do an accurate way of doing it, and not many companies will tell you this, especially security companies that are doing this, you you have to shield a certain area of the sensor because what's happening is is that there's an infrared type of camera inside a, a, a motion detector. It's sensing simply ultraviolet heat and body heat. 
and all things have that that are living. So it, an animal does have that. Um, it doesn't know what size it is because there's a filter over this this infrared camera that's spanning out the infrared into like beam sections. So like a, a makes kind of like a grid pattern of being a. That's how it determines motion is by looking at specific points and saying is that is that particular motion crossing from that point to that point and if so the motion is triggered so the only way to really get it to to focus on people and not animals is either block a certain area of the filter so that it doesn't actually do it and you can't just use anything to block it you actually have to use specific materials because it's infrared if you just put a piece of tape over it it's still looking through that piece of tape <laughs> and then there's um like uh, another form of method, which is actually using another infrared camera in parallel with it so that you can see the mass area of infrared combined with motion. So if you scan for a certain amount of heat coming off a specific thing, you can actually determine whether it's a small animal or a person. And I'm slowly getting towards getting uh, being able to do that by using two peers and a... Uh, one of them without the filter and one of them with the filter. So for the former method of uh, differentiation, could you crawl on the floor to beat that kind of motion sensor? Yes, you could. <laughs> and for the second method that you described, um, that would not work because it would have the same mass. That is correct. The or same mass would exist. Infrared mass, anyways. Exactly. Yeah, there's, there's still a few ways to defeat a motion sensor. Like, there's a special glass that you can buy that will block infrared out completely, make you completely invisible to it. Um, but it's not so easy. I mean, even my company has a bunch of motion sensors in it, and when you look at the, the sensor, it looks like a piece of plastic on the wall that's in a square box. And you're like, where's the sensor? <laughs> they literally covered the sensor up with plastic uh, as part of the case because they know it goes right through. Interesting about the pet, um, about the pet part. I have a motion sensor here in my house, but I'm pretty sure my pet can set it off. Oh yeah, um, especially if your pets get up onto the couches and the sensor is looking high enough to see a couch. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> I see. So well, we have we have that part. Um, Will that have to be written into the software as well? The, uh, the, the, the not just the detection of pets, but just the, the motion sensors themselves. I mean, they all have to be controlled by one unit, right? Ultimately, they need to be able to communicate with something, yes. And that's where my entire design comes into play, is that I have, I'm planning to put not just one little microprocessor, but dozens of microprocessors all around my house. Um, all connected to a Raspberry Pi as my main hub interface for receiving communication and sending communication to each one. Will that require software as well, the Raspberry Pi? Um, yes, actually, because the Raspberry Pi is acting as both a communications hub and a hub for external things like, uh, just to break it down, it speaks in a language called MQTT with my ESPs because the that particular protocol was designed to be very, very tiny for s certain devices just like this. 
Um, that's going to ma manage the communication and channels, and each of the devices will subscribe to a particular topic and just listening to commands those things are being told. So uh, when a, when MQT when the hub sends a, over an MQTT command to say lock the door on this particular device, or in this case not a device but a channel, that device will say, oh, I have something to do for that particular command. So it'll do this thing. And boom, stuff happens. So the Another Raspberry Pi is the heart of the uh, the heart of the uh, the automation system, then. Exactly, um, but also the Raspberry Pi also uh, communicates with Apple's HomeKit and Amazon's Alexa to provide Siri um, Home uh, HomeKit accessory support and uh, Alexa's Amazon skills or Alexa skills. I think they're stop called. saying the A word. <laughs> People might people might play this on speakers. <laughs> that, that's, that's very true. That's very true. The uh, although what you mean to say is the Amazon Echo. Yes, and mine actually listens to that particular word. Ah, sorry. <laughs> it's okay, um, but yeah, it will listen to the skills provided from those uh, devices, and be, you can control it by saying different things and say, "Open my garage door," and boom, your garage door is opening. Nice. So. You're also writing your own custom um, A-word skills that will interact with a daemon running on the Raspberry Pi that will then send a signal to the appropriate microcontroller to do the thing. Exactly. And among that, there's going to be many, many more things coming in because part of the overall plan is to uh, automate the house so that I can turn lights on and off, locks lock and unlock, uh, ventilation, turn on and turn off. And because of all the sensors that are going into play, like motion sensors, uh, door sensors, there's going to actually be a custom, fully custom security system that I'm programming as well that will actually have a keypad for unlocking manually once you are in the house because I don't want that to be accessible outside. <laughs> huh. Very cool. And yes. I'm guessing since since an A word skill is involved, um, the Raspberry Pi is going to have to be running some kind of um, some kind of web accessible interface that the skill will be communicating with. So, are you writing your own daemon to handle all this, or um, have you found a project that does kind of what you want and you're modifying it? How is that working? In this particular case with Amazon's, uh, my main goal for the Raspberry Pi hub itself is to completely remain inside the house. Outside ex communications to send information I, is planned um, because when you're involving a security system, you don't want too much external support, but you want enough communications to be able to be reliable and secure. So my plan for the Alexa portion of this is to hook up with a Lambda function on, on Amazon and create the skill, and that skill will communicate over an MQTT similar service that Amazon provides as well to initiate commands. And then that command is received and listened to on the Raspberry Pi, and it does the thing. So it's not using standard HTTP, it's using a 
uh, I, I've never heard of MQTT before. So this is a a, a protocol designed for tiny microcontroller internet of things type of services. Sort of. It was actually initially used in small appliances just to send status updates or little little messages back and forth as as needed. It was opened up several years ago and been adopted by the IoT industry because it's so such a small tiny protocol. I mean, you know what ActiveMQ or a queue management system is. Yes. Um MQTT is very similar. You create a channel, and that channel has a, na- a value, and that's all it has. You can make a device subscribe to a channel, or you can make a, a device publish information to a channel, and that's how simple it is. Everything that's subscribed to that channel receives that message. Everything that's pu- uh, pushing a topic over will just simply send that topic. Um, I think there'll be some people... Uh, in our audience that won't know what a Q channel is. Um, could we maybe uh, step back a little bit and uh, explain the, the basics of how this works? Sure. So basically, um, in several different queuing methods, you, you send a piece of information to a named label, for example. And then that named label just kind of has this piece of information like a text document. That text document is then... Uh, transferred to anybody else that anybody else that's connected to this queue and requests, hey, do you have anything new for me? And it says, yes, I have this new text document. So that's the very short version of how a queue system works. So the way that the flow works then is you give a command, whether it be through your, um, your Amazon wiretapping device or however else you do it, um, We'll use the Amazon Echo as the example. That then goes and sends out a signal through the internet to uh, the appropriate skill. The skill then contacts a Lambda function, which then uses MTQQ, you said? MQTT. MQTT, sorry, thank you. Um, And adds it to the queue to tell it... uh, open the garage door or um, alert that the motion sensor has gone off. And then the daemon that's running on the Raspberry Pi asks, hey, is there anything for me to do? And MQTT says, yes, in fact, there is. Um, someone just requested through the through the uh, skill that the garage door be open. And it says, okay, thank you very much. I'll go and open the garage door. Very similar to that approach, yes. But in, instead of uh, the Raspberry Pi itself will actually communicate with Amazon's QSER. It, I, I forget what they call it. SQS? No. Something similar to that. that it, it remotely connects to a service and then sits there and listens and waits. And then the Lambda function is triggered by a, a, a Amazon device that says, okay, we need to do this. And so it sends a message. That function sends a message to the same QServer. And then the, my, my device at home receives that. So it's like a, a hub outside that is only send from home, receive from elsewhere. I see. That is okay. quite intricate. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> actually, I wasn't even really thinking about Amazon being a part of this whole project. I thought that it would just, you would have some uh, 
some some open port and uh, running some sort of small web server on it, and that you would be sending a, a communication directly to the device. I, I didn't know you were going to do it through uh, Amazon services. Yeah, I'm actually doing it through Amazon services for the two reasons that I wanted Amazon uh, Alexa skills. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted, to, and those you have to kind of go through Amazon services to obtain. But another reason for it is that a home security system, while secure, as long as it's there, there's a side effect to having a hub that's in your home that is possibly stolen before the alarms even go off. <laughs> so right. the other aspect of Amazon is that anytime a, the alarm is active, and a sensor is triggered during that time, and a message immediately goes out to a, a central server outside the house, which if there is no code sent to release that signal, then the alerts still go off. The only okay. difference is, is that will probably send me, send me a text message to say, hey, there's something going on, I can't communicate with the house, because they might have smashed the device if they found it. Or cut the power. Exactly. Although the, the Raspberry Pi will be battery-backed. Battery-packed, okay. That's good, yeah, sure. Especially <laughs> if it's uh, uh, used as a security device as well. Exactly. So many, um, many commercial home security systems, from a security perspective, as far as protecting yourself, are atrocious. Oftentimes, uh, you'll hear about companies that they'll sell, it's all wireless, but then... All the um, communications done between the wireless components is done completely in the clear or is easy easy to jam and it'll just fail open. Um, or you can just cut a cord, snip, snip, and you're done. Um, so I'm guessing you've thought of some of these concerns. Um, and if so, which ones and how are you, uh, how are you addressing them? Well, the most common problem is power um, because of the a microprocessor does need power, so most of the important devices that are related to security will have a battery power, like a lithium polymer type of battery. Um, in certain situations, that will actually have to be closely maintained because lithium polymer batteries can be a little dangerous, and some of these are going up into the ceiling, and that's a hot area. <laughs> hmm. um, the I've, I've actually mainly started go, using the two protocols, which is Wi-Fi for wireless communication, because that's not exactly the most secure, but it is more secure than something like Z-Wave or XB, or not XB, uh, Z-Wave or Zigbee. Um, because Zigbee and Z-Wave are mesh type of low signal networks. They're supposed to be secure and encrypted, but through recent studies and analysis, we found out that that's not really the case. As we both know from security now. Exactly. So my, my, my entire process is to actually secure, make sure everything is secure end to end using TLS 1.2 encryption from ESP to the Raspberry Pi and from the Raspberry Pi to the internet to its external resources. In terms of other things, like if a particular ESP module goes offline, MQTT supports a feature last will and testament. So if a, a device disconnects, it has one last will and testament that says, hey, I'm gone. And so I know about that situation. A dead man switch. Exactly. 
So even if the power goes off, you'll still be alerted, hey, the power went off. Exactly. The power went off. Every single one of your devices are not working anymore. But what about the internet? If I can't get out to the internet, there's still a problem that I can't get out to communicate this problem if I'm not at home. So I've come up with another third method to compare with this, which a lot of security companies equivalently do, but not quite the same way. There is a device called the Photon Electron, which Photon's the company name and Electron's the, the microcontroller name, product name. It is a microcontroller with a GSM modem. So it communicates over data to a cellular network and still be, is able to provide network access as long as cellular is not being blocked. Um, is there a, for, for communication, uh, and this is going back to that dead man switch, um, but for communication when there is no internet, could you perhaps program it to uh, have some sort of maybe like a threshold, like a heartbeat, and if it doesn't detect a heartbeat, then then send you a message, something like that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I could do that. Um, basically, through MQTT, I don't always have to do that. But I do plan on putting hardware watchdog timers, which make sure that the device is communicating right, and if the watchdog keeps it alive, then... It, it continues to work, but if the watchdog doesn't see a signal that it's expecting every so often, then it'll just try to reboot the device. Actually, that's great that you mentioned. Uh, that's great that you mentioned that because I was actually going to ask you about monitoring other devices with that device. So monitoring the health of um, of your uh, wireless sensors and uh, monitoring the health of your garage uh, door opener and everything. I mean, is this uh, something that you plan on building or maybe, perhaps maybe later on? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, as, at least for the um, hardware, uh, the, the security parts of this, uh, each one of them is going to have their own watchdog timers, which is actually going to be a simple IC processor called the 555, which is literally just a timer. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be surprised if you hooked Zabbix into this somehow. I probably will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Zabbix is a an open source uh, server monitoring, alerting, and um, data graphing and aggregation tool. Um, but it can be made to do many other things. Uh, so uh, I'm in. I'm actually in the monitoring realm. I'm interested in. Uh, in knowing if you're going to, uh, later on, of course, if you're going to build some sort of a monitoring mechanism to where it sends you an email when, when one of your, uh, or a message or a text message, if one of your uh, wireless sensors are uh, not working, or I don't know if you can even do it as a misalignment or whatnot, but uh, but uh, at least at least not working and up, down, things like that, that would that'd be really neat. Um, oh, yeah. Even, even in a site that would have uh, all of the sensors and probably like a green check mark or something like that. That would be pretty neat too. Yeah, I'm actually working with a few ideas for that. Um, there's some home automation integration software that already exists that kind of come to that idea but don't actually implement the on-off state. But you can do like, uh, one thing I do plan on doing is adding a control panel, like a screen connected to a a Raspberry Pi Zero that 
provides a touchscreen interface to control everything from anywhere in the house, as well as you can use your tablet, your cell phone, or whatnot. But along the same lines, uh, I'm with software that exists, I might end up making plugins to do the state of things, like, is this thing working, or is it down for some reason? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, yeah, so... So that that would be that'd be actually that's more development. So you would also have to make the the applications for the for the tablet and, and phone, right? Not really. Not if I'm going with the current route that I'm going now, which is primarily uh, utilizing the HomeKit method. But if I were to make this to work with Android or something like that, I probably would have to start developing actual software. And this HomeKit only works on Apple, then, or unfortunately, yes. But um, okay. But you're scratching your own inch here, and you're an Apple user. That is true. I, I've I've gone the whole route with Apple these days. Do you um? Most. So, what other automation uh, scenarios do you intend to to uh, use this with? I mean, you've covered opening a garage door through um through your Echo. You've uh, covered um, humidity sensors automatically uh, turning the bathroom fan vent on and off based on humidity in the room. Uh, what else do you want to do? Well, um, I plan on putting temperature sensors throughout the, the house so that I can monitor the temperature of each individual room. Because I have a room that gets so hot because there's so many computers in there, um, that one will have its own special temperature sensor. Uh, not really special, but you know, you get what I mean. Uh, one of the things I had in a, a former house of mine that I want to rebuild, which I think is a really cool idea, is that as the temperature drops in a particular room, then the air vent will close itself when it's at the temperature that you want it to be. So if my room is particularly hot, it'll stay open longer. But if my wife is cold in her room, then the vent will close sooner, keeping her from freezing. <laughs> So it's controlling the opening and closing of the vents to control the temperature on a per room basis. Correct. That is really cool. What What about? Uh, I'm actually uh, I'm going to go back to this hot room that has all the computers. Will you connect a sensor to perhaps a box AC unit or something like that that would trigger it to come on? Um, probably not. Unfortunately, um, I I had done that before in the past where I had a, a dedicated AC in a in a in my office room. But adding an extra AC like that is just adding like a lot of extra cost, especially where I live now, where the electricity company is like the most expensive in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so what would you do in this uh, in this hot room uh, with the sensor? You'll just get alerted if the room is too hot, and would you'll go and open the door, or or the vent will open, or um, the air conditioner will turn on. All the vents around the house that are at their current temperatures that are optimal for that room will we'll close, close and then the one in this room the will actually turn up open so that it cools it down and yes if it gets too hot because if the door does close it gets really really hot um if there if the room does get so to a certain temperature alarms start going off because the equipment will start getting degraded sure. or or damaged how about fans uh you could you could put a controller in one of the fans Absolutely, and you can control. Uh, I could 
make a device that controls a light switch or a power strip, for example, that turns on a whole series of fans or each individual fan as I want. Right. Very I've neat. Actually, Very neat. I've actually started working on a, a fan unit using just a simple, you know, desk fan, and it blows across my my networking equipment. But I want to make it to where it only turns on when that area has reached a certain level of heat. Sure, sure. It's that level of uh, smartness, that intelligence that you want to add to it. Yeah, just because it's it's both conserving electricity and reducing heat by blowing that heat out, leveling that heat away, and not having to have the fan on twenty four hours a day. <laughs> I like it. Wow, uh, you should think about. Uh... If this whole thing works out and uh, and you use it for for a little while and and you think it's great, then uh, you should probably think about perhaps commercializing it somehow. That may be in the future, actually. Um, as far as I'm going with this, I'm, I mean, designing a PC board is 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 no simple thing by itself. But I'm also going to be trying to de- design uh, case ideas. 3D printing is only so good. And if you want something that's more commercial grade, you have to go with, you can still go with a similar approach to 3D printing, but it's industrial grade where they use powder-based methods and you can get very, very detailed work and exactly the way that you want it. So I don't know how much that costs, but we'll see. (laughs) Well, typically the first prototype, uh, that costs the most, the research cost time and uh and of course uh, in equipment that also costs money so i'm sure the first one won't be uh cheap but uh all the other ones after that well here's the funny thing about cost guess how much i spent make just making a garage door controller with all the components necessary to make it function to do all the things that i i wanted it to do which was open and close the door uh turn on and off the light and engage the soft lock and know the store's state without adding an extra sensor. Um, and the oscillator? Excluding the oscilloscope, because that, that, that's that's a tool. $150? Oh, no. Much lower. $70. $5. Holy cow. Raspberry Pi Zero? Well, I'm talking about just the garage door controller. The Raspberry Pi Zero is $35. The uh, ESP unit with all the components added to make this garage door part work, uh, irregardless of the Raspberry Pi, um, was only $5 to build. How neat. (laughs) Yeah. Now, getting the PC boards is going to cost me five more dollars, and then a case is maybe five more dollars, but $15? Sure. Do you have any intention of open sourcing your work? I do plan on having the schematics and the uh, the PC board design possibly opened up, and along with the soft some of the software, not all of it, probably. But yes. Do you think it would be uh, possible if um, if it was hypothetically speaking fully open sourced to still sell the kits pre made and still make money on it? I think it would very much be possible because. Not everybody can go through the whole work of uh, knowing where to go, how to do it, and or even the, the knowledge of how to even do simple things like soldering, which is part of the main part of this. Once you get the equipment, the PC board made, you still have to put the parts on it. And I guess the only problem with that is, um, assuming 
this did happen and you did a really good job of it, it would, um, anyone could take the design and resell it. But I guess it depends on how you license it. Exactly. Because I know uh, there has been a one, uh, pod, uh, not really podcast, but YouTube channel I've been watching where the guy runs a company and somebody stole his idea and they sell it for even less than he does. Mm. And that that can happen, unfortunately. Right. But it it is a need in the, in the security system industry. I don't trust any security system because of all of the problems that I hear with them. Um, from because ironically, security systems have very weak security. Exactly, and uh, I, I I actually watched a video about thinking like a criminal. <laughs> 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 so I this guy was going through different. Uh, what's the number one security company in in America these days? Is it uh, Brinks? Brinks, exactly. Um, this guy that was being thinking like a criminal. Um, his main focus was getting to the control box, deactivating the the signal to the to the company before it triggers. So, out of four houses that he demonstrated, even one that were granted he did know where all the control boxes were, um, he was able to deactivate the system in less than ten seconds out of wow. four ta- out of four houses, all four. The hmm. one, the one that was the hardest, and like I said, he did know wh- know where it was. But a normal criminal wouldn't, because it was upstairs, around the corner, in a child's bedroom, up in, near the ceiling. <laughs> 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 and he had ten seconds to get from the front door to that control box to unplug the wire, because this is the the, the common problem when you break into a house that has a security system. It usually, is delayed from that point on. If you smash the, the control box or you unplug this, the correct wires, that signal never goes out. So no no police ever get called out. And what it should have is a dead man switch for the control box. Exactly. But they don't. And mine basically will have that through external services, through cellular and hardwired internet. Um, let's say hypothetically you were to commercialize this. Um, if you commercialize it, um, it would need to come with some sort of support. <laughs> so you you'll get people emailing you or calling you all the, you know. So I guess you would have to also think about that. That's a good point. Um, though, yeah. yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> Still, um, whether I guess there or not, it's all very cool stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's quite an adventure. You've been busy. This is what happens yeah. when your uh, wife leaves for. A little while uh, to go see your family, and you get bored. Exactly. Um, yeah, because I, I I need a hobby, and I and I happen to have like a lot of different things. But you know, getting on a computer all day long it can be sometimes a little bit annoying or boring or something. So I started getting into the electronics. Um, I was like, wow, I, I I didn't know that they made this so cheap these days. Granted, my initial fr- upfront costs were atrocious because I had to get the tools. I had to get uh, I had some tools, like I had a soldering iron, I, I had pliers, I had wire cutters, but you can't use wire cutters on a circuit a PC board because the angle of the cut is too big, and you can't see what you're cutting. You know, there's a, there's several different things you need, and you also need p- components, parts, uh, sensors, everything. So, about how long ago did you start? 
I started this project about four, four and a half weeks ago now. Okay, and about how long, uh, you know, maybe add a few extra days to that, but about how long do you think it'll take for it to be complete? Um, the garage door, for the most part, is prototype complete. It's been complete after three weeks, and that's all brand new learning. Um, I've been working on the PC board for a week and a, maybe a day. And I've been working through different three different models, which one of them was through two of them. First two are through hole, which is where the components go through holes. And the last one I'm doing to make it smaller is all surface mount. Okay, so uh, what what do you think? Another another month, perhaps? Oh no, probably another week. Oh wow, okay. For for the whole thing to be a hundred percent complete for the garage door, yes. Okay, but you have all these other little components. Um. Yeah, that's very true. Um, probably maybe two months because cost, budget, and everything to get parts in. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm also ordering from China, so that takes time. <laughs> sure, sure. Great. Well, um, I actually look very much forward to um, to hearing your progress, especially uh, especially at the end. So I would I would love to have you back on the show, and so you could tell us. Uh, how everything went, uh, if you ran into any roadblocks, and uh, and how you uh, overcame that, and how the system is working. So, absolutely, yeah, this was fascinating. Um, have have we covered it? Have we covered everything so far? Is there anything else you wanted to add? There's only one more thing that I almost forgot. I said that I was working on home automation and security, but I'm also working on safety as well. So, like a fire alarm sensor system. And I could possibly add other sensors like carbon monoxide, but since my house has no gasoline, I don't see much need. <laughs> mm. But, I, uh, you know, there, there's if my house is on fire and I'm not at home, I want to know about it. <laughs> How do you intend sure. to test the uh, fire sensor or smoke detector? You might actually be surprised. They make a can of smoke. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a $20 aerosol can, but it it produces the, the, the similar aspects that the smoke detector looks for. It's better than burning a paper towel. Safer, anyways. Yeah, that's very true. Much safer than burning a paper towel. And that may not even give you enough. I was just going to say burn some toast, but sure, yeah. <laughs> but with a, a, can of, a, a can of smoke, you can spray that thing throughout the entire contents of a garage. It has no smell. It just has a lot of white mist, and then that's part of what a, garage, a, a fire sensor is looking for, is a sensor, a light going across from one point to another to see if there's any disruptions in that path. And so it, the smoke goes through it, and boom, the alarm goes off. Hmm. Very neat. So, yeah. I like it. Home automation, home security, and home safety. Oh, I'm sure it won't be over. Uh, after that, you'll you'll think of other neat uh, use cases for this possibly like uh maybe the minigun for the security system that pops out of the ceiling and (laughs) (laughs) and 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 this uh, this is how cyberdyne was born skynet (laughs) it's all because of that garage door opener (laughs) i've actually actually been considering you know how everybody has all these signs out front that says protected by brinks or protected by cox or whoever they have their Mm -hmm. security company I'm thinking about making a sign called Security System Made by a Systems Engineer. 
(laughs) (laughs) Do you want to test this system? (laughs) Very cool. Um, That's... You've learned a lot. You've been busy. That thank you so much for for sharing it with us. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. Well, um, if if that's all, um, I think we can wrap this up. Yeah, I don't have anything else. I don't think. Any other questions from you, Hero? No, no. This has been very informative. I look forward to uh, to having another podcast uh, where we uh, talk about it about uh, Eric, your finished product, and uh, and how it's. How it's going? Well, uh, thank you again for coming on and explaining this so thoroughly and eloquently. Um, really, really appreciate you taking your evening to spend it with us. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> and uh, that concludes episode nine. Good night. Good night.